0: Episode 28 of the One-to-One Career Conversation podcast, this week we're meeting with Craig Smith. Craig is the Group President for Asia-Pacific for Marriott International. He is responsible for the strategic leadership and operational development functions spanning 24 different countries and territories across 23 different brands. He oversees more than 780 open hotels and over 135,000 employees. Prior to his current position, Craig served two and a half years as the president of Marriott's Caribbean and Latin American region. Before moving to the Caribbean and Latin American region in 2011, he was the executive vice president and chief operations officer for Asia Pacific. He's a son of an American diplomat and Craig has lived in 13 different countries, worked in North America, the Caribbean and Latin America and Asia Pacific and also Australia. In today's conversation, we chat about everything from his time in Thailand leading a team through the events of 2004 and how Craig's career began in housekeeping almost 30 years ago. Here's the conversation with Craig Smith. Hi, Craig. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining us and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I am too. Thank you. So let's talk about your career. It spans 30 years, and you're now currently the group president of APAC and soon transitioning to an international role for Marriott International. How did it all begin?
1: Yeah, I go back and say, who would have thought, right? That's an American expression. But uh, I started, I got you know, I was working my way through school in a hotel, first one, my, uh, a small hotel my uncle owned, and later a, a larger hotel. Um, and I graduated and I just went in to ask them some questions. I was going to get a master's degree at that time. And I went in America Cor- corporate headquarters, asking them, what should I focus on? I thought maybe hotel business would be interesting. And they offered me a job and, uh, just on the spot, I wasn't even there looking for a job at the time. And uh, they had seen my three years of experience. And so they offered me a job in the front office and I went back the second day to fill out the paperwork and I said, Hey, and I've been working in the front office while I was in university. Um, could I try housekeeping? And uh, the guy almost fell out of his chair. Uh, No one really asked for housekeeping. And so my first job was actually assistant housekeeping manager in the Newport Beach Marriott. I walked in in a brand new suit and a big smile. And I thought I knew everything about the world because I graduated from university and I was in charge of 60 housekeepers and about 10 housemen and uh, the physical fitness area and such. And it was a big shock for me, but it was probably the greatest thing that ever happened. I you learn really quickly how to lead people.
0: So jumping back to that, when you, you took the decision to say, hey, I, I want to try housekeeping. And I think I read online somewhere that you discovered that you could manage more people, you could order supplies, and that would be good for your your career. But when you told your mom, she was less pleased about that. Her impression was, uh, you know, an old lady that perhaps spoke too much. Is that is that an accurate story that I read?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's not, you know, sexy to say, hey, listen, my
0: and I, I went to university and
1: I'm now going to be the assistant housekeeping manager. I wasn't even the housekeeping manager. And so obviously that, you know, everyone kind of fell out of their chair. And I thought it was a very strategic move at the time. I mean, I questioned it over the next couple of years because, you know, I remember covering my name tag up and, or when people asking me what I, what I did, I'd say I worked in operations. But um, it, was, it was a decision because I had worked in the front office and I wanted to work what's called the other side of the house. And in housekeeping, you, you, you manage more people, but you also manage the inventories. You learn how to do purchasing. You learn how to do budgets. Um, there's a lot more. At the, I felt there was a lot to learn that I didn't know. I had worked night audit in, in university and uh, been a front office uh, a supervisor. And to be honest with you, it was, I think it was one of the best decisions I had, not just for the, the skill set that I learned, but I think it forced me to learn how to manage people very quickly. So imagine that you walk in and you think you're a bright kid with a really nice you know, suit on and a you know college degree in your hand and all of a sudden you're you're managing people who have been in their job 20 years. And the truth of the matter is they know how to do their job better than you do. And so it fo- forced me to focus on the leadership side of of the business and how you know how to lead people, how to and we had a we actually had like a mini strike the first week I got in the job. Housekeeper sat down and refused to work. So it was kind of a trial by fire.
0: Wow. that I, uh, I, My my mother was completely the same. So I applied for a job in Marriott. It was room service. It was in uh, 2000, and uh, yeah, 2000, 2001. And she asked me, why are you working in a hotel? And I just was fascinated by the hotel industry. At that time, we'd only stayed in a few yeah. Marriott's and um, I just wanted to do it. And uh, 20 years later, I'm still here and she's very much enjoying her uh, Marriott associate rate. So, um So I think she's grateful Uh, now. uh, uh, Yeah,
1: everyone's the same. My my parents are the same, you know. And 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 I'll tell you, you know, you know Marriott really had a great program where they wanted you to learn from the ground up. So you know, even if I had gone to work in the front office or some of these other areas, you really wanted to learn the back of the business. I have a saying that what Marriott used to look for was a general manager who could put on a nice suit to welcome a dignitary to the hotel in a very eloquent fashion. But they could take off their jacket and their tie and roll their sleeves up and roll the, you know, the, the big banquet tables down the hallway at the last minute because you needed more people to help set up a meeting. room, And we wanted people and you know, we wanted people that could do both. So we didn't want a snobby general manager, but we didn't want somebody else that couldn't, you know, couldn't dress up and welcome the VIPs the way you, you needed to. And so it helped us to be a little ambidextrous in some ways as leaders.
0: So talking about your role today as a group president for Marriott International and in, in APAC, what's involved on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, that's the part I love about my job. I mean, when people ask me, what do you do? I mean, I, I'll i have a day where I'll do some, you know I'll review architecture and design uh, designs for hotels. We have something called Continent Design Review. Uh, and then later in the day, I'll uh, sit down and we'll talk about uh, marketing plans. Uh, then we'll sit down and go over accounting and budgeting uh then operation standards and so my job is 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 so diverse I mean I, I, I think to myself if I only did marketing I'd probably be bored if I only did design I'd be bored if I only did accounting I would be bored but what I love about my job is I get to do a little bit of every discipline every day and then throw in the fact that you get to do that in Japan, in Korea, in China, in India, and throw in the diversity of cultures and people and languages. And it just makes the job fun. Um, there's never a boring moment. And so there really isn't much of a normal day except that I get up and the only normalcy is I get up every day and I do planning. I do. I spend the, the first little while of the day planning out the rest of the day. And so I'm very much a planner. I, I had learned as a young manager that if you you spend 10% of your time planning, the other 90% is actually more productive. And so I plan on a yearly basis, a monthly basis, a weekly basis, and a daily basis.
0: So today you you lead hundreds of thousands of people all over Asia Pacific, as you mentioned there, Japan and India. And So how do you effectively communicate across all of those different people and organizations to make sure that everyone is aligned and they understand your vision?
1: Well we start off with something that we call, you know we we build out, uh, we take the company's vision, and then we build out a strategy for Asia Pacific. in fact, we just were working on that yesterday. And what we do is we go out and do surveys across uh, all of Asia Pacific asking key leaders, what do they think are the things uh, priorities? what are we not doing well? What can we do better? And then also, where do we think we can win? And we build that out um, into a, uh, let's call it a strategy. But you know what happens a lot of times in companies is a strategy is just a piece of paper that the, the head, the, the top leadership pats himself on the back and says, this is great. We've got a great strategy, but people don't know about it. And so we have this um, theory that we call, you know, communicate it seven times in seven ways. So we then take that strategy and we communicate it through videos. We communicate it through posters. We've actually done some animated videos to tell everybody, here's what we're we're doing. And here's what you're, what, how you're going to help to do that. And here's what it equals in the future. And so our rally cry here in Asia Pacific has really been growth. If you do a great job as a housekeeper or a dishwasher or a, a room service uh, server, um, we're, it'll help us to grow. And as we grow, that means there's more jobs. And if there's more jobs, that means there's more opportunity for you to grow your career. And so that's kind of the rally cry. Um, one of the things I learned as a father of five kids, I remember a long time ago, um, I was trying to get a hold of a couple of my kids one day, and I was frustrated. I called them; they didn't answer. I thought I was really millennial-ish. I texted them, and they didn't answer. And I was complaining to my wife, and Lisa said, "Oh, let me send them a Facebook Messenger." And she sent a Facebook Messenger note to them, and they answered right away. <laughs> and I realized that that I I needed to communicate differently, and that led me to kind of figure out with millennials they want a two-way communication. And so you can't just communicate the old school when I started, you got a memo from on high and the memo came down and you read the memo and you followed it. In today's world the communication has to be more short videos. Um, and a lot of times we actually do two way communication. So we've done a lot of WeChat chats and, and WhatsApp chats where you get or Twitter chats where we get a group of 200 leaders on the phone, junior leaders, and we, and we ask them the question, what do you think we should do to drive more top line business? And then we let them answer and then we jump in and tell them what we think. And so the communication today has to be more two-way versus the one-way from when I started with the company.
0: So do you think that two-way communication is how you as a leader evolve your business to push it forward and you, you know ultimately driving for success and bringing ideas? Is it really that two-way comm- communication that brings that out of your, of your team?
1: I think the two way communication, the other thing we have is we, we're really big into performance management. Uh, one of the things I saw is a, you know, when I was a general manager, sorry, I'm gonna tell you a story if that's okay. Uh, when I was a general manager, I, I managed in many ways. I, I was there at the hotel every day, you had your finger on the pulse, you could walk around the hotel, you saw who was working, who's not working. So very quickly you were able to adjust and change things. You know, maybe you traveled some for business, to, for sales, but you know, you were there 90% of the time. I had a a, str- a moment where I struggled when I first became an area vice president and I was in charge of, you know, 15 to 20 hotels. And in that moment, I realized I could only travel to properties maybe at the most four times a year. And how was I going to make an effect on it? How was I going to manage them? And I realized the epiphany was, I realized I wasn't going to be managing anymore. I was going to be leading. And the way to lead them was to sit down with a general manager a couple of times a year and say, let's talk about your goals. Where do we, where do we think we get and let's get together on your goals. I'm not going to send them down. We're going to, we're going to negotiate and talk and go back and forth on your goals. I'm going to manage you through your goals and I'm going to come back and give you feedback on your goals. And I think that was a, and then we would we would use statistics, guest satisfaction, associate satisfaction and such to see how we worked against our goals and I realized I couldn't manage hotels anymore. I actually had to lead hotels. So it's a very different thing where one you're, you're walking behind the group and the other you're walking ahead of the group and you're hoping they're following you. An example was a big piece of that. Goal setting was a big piece of that. And then we have something we call performance reviews where we go through at the end of each month and, and with the next level down and they do it with the next level down. And we review how we did. What can we do better? How can we support you better? And it isn't a punitive process. It's actually more of a dialogue that happens between the different levels of management to say, you know, what can we do better? Where should we focus our time? And so it's a, a lot of it's around letting, you know, teaching people the correct principles and let it and then letting them govern themselves and believing in that uh, power of empowerment. And, was, sorry, and, the, and the last thing I think we saw is that when we started doing that measuring, we actually found that some leaders that maybe were introverted, that we, you know, maybe people didn't think they were great or whatever, were actually phenomenal leaders. They were just quiet. We have a tendency to, to look at leaders that are like us and think they're all, people that are like us or that are friends with us must be great. And we found some leaders that maybe were struggling that on the surface were very extroverted, and spoke well, but their numbers really weren't there, or maybe their associates weren't happy when we started looking at their associate satisfaction numbers. And so this measurement piece was actually an incredible equalizer because it would actually told us who's really, who's, who's effective versus, you know, who looks like they're doing a good job.
0: So talking about your days as a general manager, you were the uh, general manager of the JW Marriott Hotel in Phuket, a resort and spa. It was in Thailand and it was during the tsunami in Asia in 2004. So can you talk about that moment in your career and how you led your team through such, so those tragic events,
1: yeah, it was a, you know, there, there's a little bit of luck to what happened with us. You know, we had had a, we had, we, we had a, Alan Orlog was the head of global safety and security for us. And he had pushed us as hotels to do training programs every once in a while. I remember every time, every once in a while, I gripe, you know, I don't have the time to do this. Well, about somewhere between a week to two weeks before the tsunami, we had to do a complete hotel training program on a disaster if you had it. And so we had you know, people carrying on stretchers. Uh, we had to pretend we were giving first aid to people. We had this mock thing that we did. I'll never forget it because I was kind of like, gosh, I got so many things to do. But we went ahead and did it anyway. And in that, one of the things that came out is you have to have a, let's call it a command room that everybody knows this is where you go to if there's a, if there's a fire or an emergency and here's how you deal with it. And this this person is in charge of this, this person is in charge of that. And, and the point on this is that um, for emergencies and crisis management, things have to almost become a habit, and we had that. We had, you know, we we had a crisis book. I knew where we knew where where it was on the shelf because we had been practicing through the year, and we practiced two weeks prior. And so I was at home. It was a Sunday, and I got a phone. I have a phone call from our resident manager, Tira. He was manager on duty. I was walking around the hotel. He went out to the beach, and uh, the there was these older ladies that gave massage at local. From the local village, gave massages on the beach, and one of them had said, "I've never seen the ocean act like this. The way you know, the tide had gone way out." So he called me up, and you know, this and this is the most expensive week of the year. People pay three times regular rates uh, during that holiday season. And he, I just said, "Tira, you're there. Make the decision." This just goes back to empowerment, right? And Tira made the decision. We had sailboats. We we called in. Uh, I was I uh, got in the car and drove up to work. He couldn't really describe. We'd never thought of a tsunami. No one had in those days, and um, we pulled the sailboats in, and they were clear. They cleared the beach, and they were clearing the pool when the three waves came in. And so, we actually, even Tierra was carried and broke his hand in a whole bunch of spots. And we had some people we sent to the hospital, but we were very lucky; we didn't lose a single guest. But arriving there, I arrived there when the water was going out. So there were people running up and down the street, screaming, and you know, there's panic. We had lost some restaurants and the suites in the front of the property and, and such, and you kind of almost, my leadership changed. My leadership is very inclusive. I allow my team today, and even yesterday, we were in a planning meeting, allow them to argue with me. We have a very open food fight and debates in our, as our team. And it's not because I'm a great guy. It's because I I figured out that if I allow dissent and argument in my team, it, it brings the best ideas forward and also keeps me from making a mistake as a leader. But when a crisis like that hit, what I realized is you have to, change your leadership style and I went straight into autocratic in some ways a more authoritarian or autocratic leader called everybody to the you know our our command room um what do you think we doled out rather you know I want you to go check on guests we needed to do headcount to see if we were missing anyone we didn't actually know we had people out on tours we didn't know if they were live and so we we, we went very much into almost a military type command and control type of leadership role people said you do this you do this you do this and when we established that for the most part our guests were okay and then we started reaching out we went up to a place called cow lock which had suffered suffered the worst of the damage and we started bringing people back and pickup trucks and anything we could um the survivors of other resorts um, that were you know and we filled our ballroom up with the victims and and you know we brought clothes in for them food for them and that's what it was like and you know you didn't sleep for a couple of days and one of the last learnings I would say on crisis management is everybody wants to be heroes. So no one wants to go home and sleep. And sleep is an important weapon because your stress levels are high uh, already. And so people start picking at each other, they start making the wrong decisions. And so we started forcing people to go home and sleep in shifts. And that, that's a very important thing is food and sleep in a crisis are paramount. And if you don't have that, you start making, people start making their own decisions, leaders start arguing things get very negative very fast. And so I, I was really proud of the team. The team came together. Tira made the right decision. He was later given the chairman's award from Mr. Marriott for the decision he made on the beach that day and the lives that he saved. And I was very proud, very, very proud to have a yeah. team
0: like that. And at the time, Marriott had around 2,000 hotels and the chairman, Mr. Marriott had called you twice in the immediate aftermath, I understand. And his first question was, about the employees and do you really think that speaks to the culture of Marriott and did you see that at other competitors maybe across across that market?
1: Yeah so it's a great question because you know Ed Hubbin who you've spoken to he was my area vice president so I spoke to him Then I spoke to Jeff Garside who was our executive vice president for Asia Pacific the president of uh, Marriott International. Ed Fuller called him right away. Uh, Bill Marriott called twice, and I'll tell you about that. And then also our vice chairman of the board, uh, sorry, vice chairman, and also the, C- the CEO, COO for the company. Um, Bill Shaw also called me. And you imagine all these senior leaders. Now I had, you know, I've grown my career in Marriott. And so I just kind of thought that was normal. You know, I had been in, I remember being in a hurricane in the Dominican Republic and losing a good 25% of the windows of the hotel were blown out. And I remember getting a call from Ed Fuller, who was the international president at the time. And Ed, the first question he said to me is, how, how are you doing? Second question is, how's your family? Third question is, how are the associates? And it wasn't until like the fifth or sixth question he even asked, how's the hotel doing? It was very interesting, but that's just the way it was. And so you assumed it was. And so a little while after the, the tsunami, a bunch of general managers in Phuket, we were all sitting together having lunch and we were talking about our experiences and uh i was you know i said you know somebody said you know what happened i said oh yeah you know mr Wright just called me again they've sent us a ton of supplies and one of them, one of our competitors stopped and he said i've got one phone call from senior leadership the entire time from the day of the tsunami until now this is a month later and the and the only call it was was your business is going to go down make sure you cut the staff ours was you know all about how, what are you doing to take care of the Marriott foundation? sent us money. We rebuilt the local village houses of associates that had been damaged and all sorts of things like that. And even new year's morning, believe it or not. Um, I was very happy that I don't drink and, and I was awakened in the office on, on new year's morning at 8am and the phone rang. I was by myself, pick up the phone and it was Bill Marriott and he was calling me from Florida on new year's Eve just before going down to New Year's Eve party to ask me how I was doing and how the family was doing, how are the associates and what else can we do? And I had to say, listen, we've, we've already rebuilt houses, supplied, you know, food and everything else you guys have done enough. There's nothing else. We're we're doing okay. It was such a, it was an interesting thing because you, you just thought, you know, I thought it was normal, Uh, but it it wasn't normal. It's just, it's the secret sauce of our company is this. And so now when, I have problems. That's you know, when somebody has an issue in a, one of our hotels, first thing I think of is what am I doing as a leader? Can I tell you one other story that tells a sure. lot about Mr. Moran? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. A few years ago, about five or six years ago, I was really stressed in my job. And we have this annual event, um, the uh, Awards of Excellence, where we bring in the top associates from all over the world. So one from Asia, one from Middle East and Africa, one from Europe. And you, you, they, we bring them in and there's a week long process and it culminates with this, this huge event in a big ballroom where the Marriott family's there, senior leaders are there, a lot, huge piece of corporate headquarters are there and we celebrate and they give these medals out to these people who have done extraordinary things. So this is one of the biggest events of the, of the year. And I had gone in and I was stressed and I had a, you know, I, I had sat on the the front row off to the side um, and I had some chest pains and I kind of got up and I walked out the door and I I went outside and I sat down on the bench. I didn't want to make a scene. So no one really noticed. And somebody from security came by and said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I just, you know, my my chest hurts a little bit. And they said, you're sure you're okay. And I said, yeah, I'm fine. And so I went up, I was staying in that same hotel. I went up to my room and laid down to try to get my blood pressure. I have high blood pressure, try to, relax and there was a knock on the door and I went to the door and there's security and they've got you know you know those paddles that revive somebody and everything else (laughs) they had the whole kit (laughs) you know it looked like you know the ambulance had arrived and they said listen we're really worried about you we really would like to take you to the hospital and I said hey listen I'm okay I really appreciate you coming and it felt good to know that our people were doing what they're supposed to do right checking on a client And so I went back and I lie down again and I'm trying to relax and I'm laying there. And about 10, 15 minutes later, there's a knock on the door again. I kind of get up thinking, how am I going to relax if people keep knocking on the door? And it's the general manager of the hotel. And he's Mr. Smith. I want to take you to, you know, we'd like to take you to hospital. A little worried you got to get checked out. And I said, no, no, I'm okay. Thank you. And I thanked him and I went back and I thought, again, same thing. You know, I need to relax. That was really great. that They're checking up on me if they're doing their job. So now about another 50 minutes later, there's another knock on the door. Now I'm a little irritated, right? And I'm thinking, how am I going to relax? And how am I going to get my blood pressure down, my heart okay, if people keep knocking on the door? And I swing the door open kind of with this, you know, come on, look on my face. And there's Mr. Marriott, Mrs. Marriott, uh, Ron Harrison, Mr. Marriott's son-in-law, and Debbie Marriott, his wife. Imagine this. They came to my room. Mr. Marriott, in his hand, has the keys to his car. And he says, I'm going to drive you to the hospital. Imagine Incredible. it. Where does that happen? Where does Not that many happen?
0: Places. Not I mean, many places. you
1: know, no, the chairman, he, he, and, and I, you know, I was embarrassed, you know, and I had said, Hey, listen, I'll make a deal with you. I will go to the hospital with security. If you go back down, because there was a, a dinner after that event. And I said, Go back down to that dinner because there's people who really want to see you. I mean, you know, you're, he's an icon, right? And so we made that deal and I went to the hospital and I got checked out and the doctors, you know, gave me some lifestyle changes and everything else, which have worked out. But, you know, where, where does that happen? And, and you know, so now, you know, I can be as, I can be busy. And if, you know, you hear that there's somebody in the hospital, Luis and I, we, we get in the car and we drive over to the hospital to visit somebody, even if it's somebody's spouse. Because I, you keep thinking, what would Mr. Moria do? What kind of leader would you be? And who do you, you know, who do you want to be? So this is a massive lesson about leadership is it, it comes by example, you, you learn leadership on the job as a young housekeeping manager, and you learn leadership because of the example of the people above you. When there is a disaster, and you pick up the phone, you call someone to say, "How are you?" You do that because you learned that growing up as a leader. You know? um, yeah, and and that's that that that's really who we are as, as as a. And the worry I have is, you know, am I transmitting? Am I teaching the leaders below me to do that? So that they'll someday be like, a, you know, Mr. Matt or Arnie Sorenson or, you know, Arnie, I have a monthly phone call with Arnie. And and the first thing he asked me with everything that's going on today, he always asks me, you know, how's Louisa? How's the family? And then he wants to go individually through the, my direct reports. How are they doing? I mean, you know, it, that's, yeah. what the, yeah. the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth is usually the most important thing.
0: It's a, it's attention to detail, and he, you know, for him to remember those names and understand them, and and be able to yeah. articulate that on a monthly basis is very impressive.
1: So like you, like you just you know, you said earlier to me about the, you know Ed Hubbinet having worked for him years ago, and him still remembering your 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 children, yeah. and wanting and really wanting to know how they are. It's a it's yeah. a human connection.
0: Exactly. And, um, you know, I was reading something online, and you meant your father was a US diplomat. And you mentioned that one of the key learnings that you learned from him was how to act with others is really the true test of you as a person. So I was wondering if you could talk through your experiences with seeing your father as a US diplomat and how that maybe shapes your interaction today. with Yeah,
1: yeah the story you may be telling actually is just twofold. It was, it was about my father. And it was also about Simon Cooper, who was my boss. Uh, at the time, I think, that, or, or just after he, I, he, had, he had just retired, and I had two images of you know what, you know we we have in the Ritz-Carlton what we call ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, and this concept. And so this concept for me of what is a gentleman has always been interesting. I bought a couple books when I, you know, I my youngest son, you know, or also all our, our boys, we have pushed them to always open the doors and be let's call it a gentleman, right? You know, how do you, you know, walk up the stairs behind a lady, walk down the stairs before a lady, all these things that you want to do. But this concept of what a real gentleman is and, and, and you know, how do you act is, is you, again, you learn from, from, from example, right? And my father, I had this image of my father, we had moved to Budapest, Hungary um, back in the Cold War days. And we, we had this really old, huge mansion. And I remember we moved into it. You know, he was the number three at that time in the embassy. And it just felt like we were on top of the world. You know, big mansion. It had like uh, sofa sets. I think I counted six different sofa sets across the house. You know, one and a you know, and, and it was just cool. And we had you know, my father would host these parties with diplomats from other countries, and the way he would speak to them was, you know, you, you know, I, I was you're kind of proud as a kid. My dad's a big deal. You know, he's speaking to this ambassador from this country, or this ambassador from that country, and you're feeling good. And it was this one day I was sitting in the kitchen eating. Uh, and our, 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 cook was there and I remember my father came in I just heard him speaking to all these, you know, let's call them big wigs and the way he addressed our cook was the same way that he addressed all of those people. And it's funny cause I, I mentioned it to him. He doesn't even remember it, of course, but it was one of those searing moments in my mind as a kid that, that, and I've watched the way my father talks to people who maybe come from, you know, less, you know, less socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, and he tre- he talked to them the same way he would speak to somebody that uh, maybe had a PhD or maybe had a, a very large job in the government, and that was so impressive with me because it it kind of a true gentleman treats everybody as a gentleman, not just people that that wear nice suits or expensive shoes. And the other image is uh, Simon Cooper, who actually is a true gentleman, and Simon had come from the the Rich Carlton side of our business, and so I remember when he first. The first time i met him i was you know nervous and i was thinking okay am i polished enough for him you know he's simon came from a family that actually had uh, had a they sold cloth to all the best tailors on saddle row and they had a store there i think for 300 years so he obviously is, you know came from a decent background so the first time i met him you know, we were in the airport together and we're in the lounge and i was trying to speak and be all debonair and everything else and he uh, you know, he he'd asked me if, you know, can I get a drink for you? I remember thinking, you're going to get a drink for me. You're Simon Cooper, this legend. And that was just how Simon was. But what was really interesting is that when we left Hong Kong the first time, we'd lived here seven and a half years. And for our youngest two children, this was home. This is where, you know, this was the longest we'd lived anywhere was before that was two years. And so this was in the end that Louisa and the kids came came after. I, I flew out first to Florida and then they were going to follow me. And the day they checked out, Louisa called me and she was really emotional. And she said, you know, we, we checked out. The kids are, you know, the kids were emotional. We're leaving our home. We love this place. You know, kids were crying. It was, it was like five 30 in the morning and they're checking out of the hotel. It was just a tough experience. And guess who was in the lobby? Simon Cooper. Simon Cooper went to the hotel in the lobby to say goodbye. Wow. You know, and she, you know, and she talks about, so I'm getting emotional now, but she talked about how, what kind of man does that, you know? And just, you know, here's Simon Cooper, this man, and he took the time to go say goodbye to, to Luis and the kids. Wow. Yeah. That's a real gentleman. Absolutely. And, and that's a real leader, right? So, you know, again, I go back to this connect. How do you connect with people? If you really believe in leadership, if you really, really believe in the tenets of leadership, that means you have to get work done through others. Which means your job is to support them. And so my favorite leadership word is the word stewardship. Because stewardship is more about you as a leader serving the people versus them serving you. And we get confused with that in life, especially in places like Asia where I, I show up to a hotel and 300 people are waiting outside and you feel like you're the king. It's really hard to keep that in check and remind yourself your job is to take care of them, not them take care of you.
0: So, so one of the biggest challenges the world faces today is the current COVID-19, uh, global pandemic. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about what it's like leading your business through this pandemic and how it's maybe evolved you as a, as a leader.
1: Yeah. You know, you, you know, I, I think Mr. Red once said you, Craig, gosh, I don't think there's anyone in the company who's gone through more crises than you have. And I, I thought at that time, geez, I've had bombings, I've had tsunamis, I, you know, I, I've, uh, We've had, I've, you know, we've had every crisis, possible hurricanes, um, and I thought I saw it all. Um, And this one is, was a new one. Uh, But there's still, there's there's still commonalities, right? You still have to pick a goal. You still have to buoy people up and and motivate them and make them feel like there's a purpose. Uh, You still have to help quell their fears. Um, And this is a, you know, this is one that's tough because this also leads to fear, you know, what about my job? Uh, What about my future? Uh, am I doing the right thing? And so I think the same thing happens. We gather the team together and we said, okay, we're going to scrap our strategy and our plan that we had before, but what's our plan now? What do we do now? What do we focus on? You allow very good minds in the room to argue over what we should be focusing on. And you know, there were times where I thought I was doing well and some of my direct reports will come to me and say, listen, you need to communicate more. or We need to be a little more transparent about this. And one of the things that we did is we tried as much as possible to be as honest with everybody about what was happening. You know, there's there's a great amount of fear and uncertainty, especially in our our business, when all of a sudden you you know you drop off and you look at hotels that've been running eighty percent occupancy and they're running ten percent occupancy. You know, and the worry about jobs and the job losses in our industry and in our company and such. And you have to you have to almost in some ways shut away your own personal emotions and I'd go back to the word stewardship and ask yourself what, what am I doing for the people that work for me? Am I taking care of them? Am I motivating them? Am I being honest with them? And a lot of leadership even in crisis is like being a parent, which involves a lot of giving love, but it also at times means is there's there's some discipline in there too. And if people know that you care about them, then they don't mind when you are when you're when you have to be tough with them or have to be direct with them because they know it's coming from a place of love, right? We don't use the word love in business, unfortunately, but it's that's the same thing. You really care about the people you work for, them. and so in this in this environment, you know, we had to stop. And one one of the things that became apparent for us was that China and the rest of, what we call APEC Asia Pacific, excluding China, were on two different trajectories. China actually just recovered very fast. Last month, we did a higher occupancy than we did, you know, um, last year for the same month. So China China's numbers are actually pretty good. And so we had to say, okay, thing, you know, let's not treat everybody the same. Let's make sure that we focus on driving business in China and focus on saving business in the, in APEC. And then uh, a lot of listening, a lot of, you know, town hall meetings, asking questions, you know, listening to people's fears. Sometimes it's a, uh, sometimes I had a daughter one time that chastised me, and she said, Dad, every time I tell you a problem, you want to fix it. And I thought I was being a great father, and she says, All I want you to do is listen. <laughs> That's one of my problems as a leader, by the way.
0: So I have some quick fire questions for you. Sure. When, when working with you, what are two behavioral qualities that others just have to show on a daily basis?
1: Um, They have to be a team player. They have to care about the people and they have to be focused on the output. In other words, the
0: results. And then what is one unacceptable behavior at work that you just simply do not tolerate treating your subordinates poorly. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Craig. I, I could have sat here for hours and asked you about learning and being a father of five, but I know wow. that you're, you're very, very busy. So I appreciate the time that you've you spent with us today. And, um, thank you again for, for coming on and telling your, telling your story and sharing your experiences. No, my pleasure. My
1: my story is really weaved in with all these other great Marriott leaders that I've had the opportunity to work with. I mean, um, mean, hopefully someday somebody will say, I learned this from Craig, but thanks
0: again. Yeah, thank you so much. Enjoy your day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. I personally really enjoyed the 35 minutes or so that I was with Craig. His leadership and passion really showed through all the way through our conversation. A couple of things really stuck out to me while we were together. How he treats others. His story about Mr. Marriott wanting to take him to hospital and how that shaped him as a leader. Ultimately, how he values how you treat others as a true test of you as a person. Also, his communication strategy to team members when something is new or needs to be communicated and how he adopts seven different ways of communicating. I've actually personally used that a couple of times since recording this episode. Thanks again for downloading and listening to the One-to-One Career Conversation podcast. You can find us over on LinkedIn by searching One-to-One Career Conversation and you can also follow us over on Instagram and Twitter at the One-to-One Pod. Please also do let us know what you thought of today's conversation with Craig and you can do that through any of the social platforms or on iTunes reviews. And as a reminder, this podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts and probably anywhere else that you enjoy listening to podcasts. Hit subscribe to be notified of new episodes.